welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Ring of Fire, Politically Direct, The Young Turks, The Sam Cedar Show, and Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Joining us now is Elizabeth Holtzman, a former Congress member from New York and former Brooklyn District Attorney. While in Congress, she served on the committee that voted to impeach President Nixon, and she's now arguing that the current president should also be removed from office. Liz, welcome to Ring of Fire. Well, thank you so much. I'm very glad to be on this program with you. President Nixon was elected with the greatest majority in American history. And at the time he was elected, in 1972, 1973, it was pretty much hard to believe that he'd be impeached nine months later. Yes, I mean, let's just go through the timeline, because, you know, people say impeachment, that's impossible. I mean, that could never happen. The Watergate break-in took place in June of 1972. The cover-up was so successful that six months later, in November 1972, Richard Nixon was elected in one of the largest landslides in American history. By that time, by his election, the word impeachment and Richard Nixon could nowhere be found together in the same sentence, paragraph, book, or in the universe. Nobody dreamed that Richard Nixon had any involvement with the Watergate break-in. But within another 10 months, impeachment was on everybody's lips because by that time, information began to dribble out about uh, higher-ups involved in the Watergate break-in higher-ups involved in the cover-up, and ultimately, when Richard Nixon fired the special prosecutor who was investigating him, the American people said, enough is enough. The president is not above the law. He can't stop a criminal investigation. The criminal law is going to apply to him just as everybody else. And that's when impeachment started. And it was because the American people insisted on it. Uh, impeachment can happen. And I think that it's really important for people to understand that history. The framers of the Constitution gave us the impeachment power, the American people and the Congress, because they understood that there had come a time when a president, despite the limits of a four-year term and despite the checks and balances of our system, a president could subvert the Constitution and would become a menace to our democracy. So they envisioned a George Bush, and they gave us the tools to deal with him and preserve our democracy. In my book, I put in the, it's a very short debate about how the impeachment clause got into the Constitution. And they understood the framers, that they could be great and dangerous offenses, that they could be a subversion of the Constitution, that they could be a threat to our democracy. So it was put in the hands of Congress. The impeachment power wasn't given to the Supreme Court. It was given to Congress because in the end, the American people have the power to influence the Congress and make it act, which is what happened during the Nixon impeachment. The president doesn't have to commit a crime to be impeached. All he has to do is violate his oath of office. And his oath of office requires him to aggressively uphold the Constitution of the United States. We spent a lot of time during the um, Nixon impeachment process trying to understand what a high crime and misdemeanor is, because it sounds like a crime. It sounds like a criminal act. But the term high crime and misdemeanor was taken from British practice, ancient British practice, and it really means a political crime as opposed to violation of the criminal code. It could also be a crime, but doesn't have to be a crime. One of the articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon, there were three that were voted. One was abuse of power, uh, for example, telling the Internal Revenue Service to audit and harass his political enemies. That wasn't a crime, but it was an abuse of his power. Illegal wiretapping could have been a crime, but it was an abuse of power. A misuse of federal agencies was an abuse of power. Actually, that article of the impeachment uh, articles against Richard Nixon was the one that garnered the most votes, most Republican and all Democratic votes. Some held out for actual evidence of crime, and of course that did show up when the Supreme Court ruled that the tapes be released. And at that point, every member of the committee, both Republican and Democratic, supported the impeachment, and Richard Nixon resigned in face of certain impeachment and removal from office. You mentioned wiretapping, and that's something that you talk about in relationship to President Bush in your book. You just said that President Nixon's wiretapping may or may not have been illegal, but President Bush's wiretapping was certainly illegal by his own admission. Illegal in the sense of actually violating criminal law. But President Bush, Congress passed a law, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, against the background of two things. Number one, Richard Nixon's illegal wiretaps, improper, unlawful wiretaps. They didn't want a president 
ever again to have the power on his own say-so to do this kind of wiretapping because he was wiretapping journalists and they ultimately became political and he was wiretapping his staff. He claimed they were national security but had nothing to do with national security. So that law was also enacted against the background of huge abuses by federal agencies in terms of wiretapping. It's amazing. That law has a very simple philosophy. The president has to go to a court to get approval. The court is a special court. It has special expertise. And this is not a court that says no very many times. I think President Bush has said, I'm not bound by that law. I'm the president. On that subject, the signing statements that the president's almost 800 signing statements, those are almost a, a direct defiance of the president announcing that he, he is not subject to the law. For people who don't understand that signing statements are statements that the president has habitually now appended to over 800 laws that he has signed since he's become president, announcing, declaring essentially that he will obey the law to the extent that he feels he needs to obey it, but he also asserting that he has the power to disobey those laws. This is just another indication of President Bush's view that he is above the law. I think Richard Nixon said that at one point. Uh, I, I'm the president. What I say is the law. I mean, but that's not America, and that's not a constitutional democracy. Senator Russ Feingold. He's been a guest on this program before. Senator Feingold, welcome back to Politically Direct. Good to be on the show again. Thank you for inviting me. Well, there's so much that's been going on. You've been at the forefront of this fight on the NSA legislation, and it's been playing out now. This president has not backed away from trying to accrue more power, which is just stunning given uh, what we've learned over the way they've abused it. How do you see this going forward? Well, you know, the fact is every American would be prepared to give the president more power if he demonstrated that he needed it in order to successfully fight this terrorism battle. But he hasn't done that. And this administration, instead of being uh, focused primarily on dealing with those that attacked us in 9-11, has essentially had two uh, obsessions. One has been Iraq, and the other one has been expanding executive power. Uh, and they have failed miserably to make the case that they need to have this new legislation or these new powers in order to wiretap terrorists. We all support wiretapping terrorists. Senator Feinstein and I are both on the Intelligence Committee and the Judiciary Committee. Which been, finally released a report. Right, on Iraq. on Iraq. But on the NSA, she and I have been through all these hearings, and we have publicly been able to say that we don't see the need for this massive new uh, warrantless program given the current uh, state of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So this is a power grab. This isn't about uh, fighting terrorism, and, it's, and it really is sad, and we need to stand up to it. Well, that was my point about the Iraq report, which actually speaks to the idea that they have been using misinformation or claims that they needed power or authority and the authority to go into Iraq, and when you actually see the facts being revealed, they are false claims. They're basing it on false information. And as I understand it, as you're pushing now for further real investigation, understanding of what it is they want, why the FISA court isn't adequate. You've asked for information. The Judiciary Committee doesn't even have as much information as the Intelligence Committee, and both groups don't have what they need to make a decision. Yeah, Senator Rockefeller was able last week, the vice chairman of the committee, the top Democrat on the Intelligence Committee, to make public a fact that we've known for some time is the White House simply hasn't provided us with the documents that we have to have for even the Intelligence Committee members to understand everything about this program. But I'll tell you this, from whatever I've seen and whatever Senator Feinstein's seen, they haven't made any reasonable case that they have to revamp this thing or create a provision like there is in the uh, bill by Senator Specter that basically says the president can make up whatever laws he wants if he doesn't like the ones we have. So this is a secret power grab that, that it is our really our sacred responsibility as a Congress to stand up to. 
Senator, when we had you on this program last, uh, you had just introduced a resolution of censure. I know that hasn't moved, and you didn't expect it to. No, certainly not in this Congress. But to that point, the reason you introduced it was this president has consistently acted as if he did not need to abide by the law or the Constitution. This is an extension of that practice has the spotlight and you started it, I, I believe, with that resolution, which helped to focus on the broader question. Has that had an impact? You've been going around the country a great deal. You've traveled a lot. Are you hearing from people now, Senator Feingold, thank you for finally speaking truth to Absolutely. power? Absolutely, and you, you get it 100%. The purpose of introducing that censure resolution was to do exactly what you just said. The whole Congress was was acting like sheep on this issue. This program was revealed last December, this illegal program, and everybody said, hey, you can't do that. But then they became intimidated by the president who said, well, you know, you're not for wiretapping the terrorists. So people just stopped talking about the fact that the president has thumbed his nose at the law, and they were saying, well, should we pass a bill to allow him to do this? And I waited patiently for three months. I went to all the hearings on the Intelligence Committee and and the Judiciary Committee, and finally I said, that's it. This whole process has come to a stop. We need to focus attention not only on exactly how to, what powers are needed, but on the fact that the president doesn't respect the, our system of government. That was the purpose of introducing the censure resolution, and of course it's worked. In every interview I've act, I'm asked about it, people are very aware now of the fact that the president broke the law, not just that he wants more powers. And I would love to pass it in a new Congress, but it actually has accomplished its historic goal which is to make it clear that this was a, an, an overreach and a grab. And frankly, these bills are all an admission that the president violated the law because they're trying to somehow make what he did legal. You can't go back and make an illegal act legal, right? No, I mean, you can certainly say, look, maybe, maybe this law needed to be changed in some ways and maybe we ought to do this and ought to, maybe we ought to do that. But you can't change the fact that somebody... And not only doesn't follow the law, I mean, people can accidentally break a law and you can take that into account. But here, the president of the United States openly misled the American people on several occasions, including in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, specifically saying that they, they don't do warrantless wiretapping. They got caught. And then he went ahead and, and tried to intimidate people by saying that it was not only legal, but anybody that had a different view of the law was siding with the terrorists. So this hasn't just been an isolated incident of somebody sort of tripping over a law they didn't understand. This was intentional, and it continues to be part of one of the worst attempted executive power grabs in the history of this country. And the nerve of the man to do it in Fond du Lac. You know, well, to come into your state. Well, he, they really like making these announcements in my state. He also uh, trotted out heavily this term Islamic fascism, which I think is not a good idea. Well, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about that because you focused on that. And I was really impressed you went to an organization to talk about this of Arab Americans. And, in fact, the rhetoric that this president has used. Now, you know, we've heard all of the uh, sort of the macho statements of wanted dead or alive and, you know, uh, bring it on. But he has used rhetoric about this war on terror that has just inflamed not only the American people and obviously for political purposes, and we're seeing it yet again in this run up to the election, but he's inflamed people around the world. And I don't think he has any understanding of the impact of his own words. It feels like that. And here's the problem, David. It isn't just that he's doing it. It's not like he just kind of accidentally said that. It was clearly a decision was made because he said it in Green Bay. And then when I was on the, uh, George Stephanopoulos' show, uh, Chertoff had said it just a few minutes before. It was a talking point. And you heard it on Fox News. Well, I'll tell you, even Karen Hughes understands this doesn't make sense. She's told the president to stop using this term. And I think he is stopping. And here's the sad thing, whether it be the reference to the Crusades, which was a crusade, which was perhaps an accident. But even on Fox News, I heard a panel the other day. Of course, they wouldn't give me credit for having pointed out that this doesn't make sense. But one of the guys on there said, look, I want to win this thing against terrorism. And if that means doing your best not to offend the 1.3 billion Muslims in the world, why not? The goal is to isolate the terrorists not to isolate Muslims. And frankly, this is one of the most important things for our future is our relationship with the Islamic world. We can have a relationship trying to have connections with the moderate, peace-loving uh, people that most of them are, or we can create a situation where they feel that we're antagonistic to the whole people and to the whole religion, which I think is a formula for a very sad world for our children and grandchildren. You said you heard this on Fox News. Do you remember the old maxim uh, during the Vietnam War, which was when Lyndon Johnson said, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost America. If Bush has lost Fox News, 
That's He's right. in trouble. And, and in fact, you can see this play out on Iraq. I mean, six to eight months ago on Fox News, you'd still, they'd have these generals and other people out there saying, yeah, you know, the insurgents are in their last throes, and this isn't a civil war, and everything's hunky-dory. They're not even trying that anymore. Even Fox News basically admits it's a mistake, but what do we do about it now? So, yeah, when they lose Fox News, they're in trouble. And, sure. and Fox News will never admit it, but you can just tell by who they have on there that they know that this Iraq war was one of the, frankly, most bizarre decisions ever made after we were attacked. Senator, I mentioned that you've been traveling a great deal around the country. Let me ask you, you've seen a lot of these Democratic candidates. You've been helping many of them uh, through your organization, uh, Progressive Patriots. What's your sense of it? What's your sense of the climate? You know, the poll numbers are now narrowing again as we knew they would when they beat the drums of fear and fear alike. What's your perception as you travel around this country? That the situation is very fluid. There is a real opportunity for us to win the House and maybe the Senate. But I still continue to think that there's this tendency as the weather gets colder for Democrats to become more timid, to not come out strongly for a timetable to bring the troops out of Iraq, to not stand up for the rule of law. And we need to do that because if people perceive that the administration is successfully cowing us in some way or intimidating us, they're going to say these guys aren't ready to govern. And so I still think we can do it. I'm going to be doing a lot of traveling all the way from Seattle to New Jersey to, to Nevada to, to a bunch of states before now in the election to try to help people. But we need to be uh, convey an image of strength on both international and domestic issues. If we don't, we could still end up not having a good result. You think it's an accident that gas prices have been dropping just about the time that we're heading into this election? It's, it's an odd it's, coincidence. It's a little hard to imagine them dropping that fast, that far. Uh, I'm glad they're coming down. Uh, but it makes you wonder a little bit. Doesn't it, though? Senator, lastly, um, I know you've talked publicly about the fact that you're looking at 2008. I'm not going to ask you if you decided, but I am going to ask you, if you should decide, why would you run? Oh, you know, I would run if I did run because I think we need a progressive approach to our country's problems. I think we need a Democratic Party that it really stands on a different vision of a great, diverse country that still believes in its constitution and that, that we can help fight this terrorist threat, this threat from al-Qaeda, in a way that, that's a lot more intelligent and a lot more effective. You know, that's the kind of thing that if I ever ran, I'd want to I'd talk about. That's what I'm talking about now as I do my own work and as I help other people. We shouldn't sell short the possibility that a very new vision of how to handle these problems would be accepted by the American people. I think the American people are looking for exactly that. And, and so if I ran or whoever else I would support, that's what I'm looking for. with former Congress member Elizabeth Holtzman, who served on the committee that voted to impeach President Nixon. She's now arguing that the current president should be removed from office, and she lays out a very compelling legal case for that in The Impeachment of George Bush, a book she co-authored with Cynthia Cooper. Liz, you lay out a number of indictments that you believe that he could be impeached for. One of those is, to me, the kind of the least convincing one is the the mismanagement and the indifference to human life in, in Katrina, in his response to Katrina. Presidents make mistakes all the time, and, you know, this one was a horrible one. But is it the kind of thing that you can impeach somebody for? Well, I think you raise a good question, Bobby, and um, I struggled with this. What you have here is the president was told personally, although he initially denied it, but there's a video. The president was personally told that the levees could be breached in uh, New Orleans, and he was told by Brownie, you've done a heck of a job, Brownie, who was the head of FEMA, that there was going to be a catastrophe. The president, under a system of laws with regard to disaster relief, and this is according to a study that was done by the Republican-controlled Congress, is really the commander-in-chief of disaster relief. In other words, he is the one who could mobilize, in the end, all the resources of the federal government. And the video of that meeting shows him saying basically nothing about it. He didn't ask one question. When he had the special power, no one else in the country had the power he did, 
to mobilize the military, mobilize emergency resources, mobilize medical assistance, mobilize food, and, and try to minimize to the fullest extent possible the calamity that was about to happen. Now, I guess people could disagree because it's not anything like any of the other impeachment articles that were voted during Nixon, but it does strike me that when a president is constitutionally responsible for taking care that the laws are faithfully executed, that you can't just walk away and go on vacation when you know that something drastic is about to happen. I think, you know, you just kind of have to give orders and find out what's going on and take charge, and he didn't. You know, one of the things that you've pointed out is the judicious use of the impeachment remedy in the past. As you point out in the book, it was it became the, a, a partisan tool during the Andrew Jackson impeachment following the Civil War. But uh, in modern history, for example, with the impeachment you were involved with, with Richard Nixon, it was a bipartisan effort. And right. one of the things that John Dean, who's I, I think ended up kind of being a friend of yours, which is a kind of odd friendship at this point. Um, one of the things he's pointed out is that Goldwater and a number of other high-level Republicans approached Nixon in the White House and asked him to resign to avoid the constitutional crisis. During the Reagan administration, the Democrats agreed to refrain from impeachment, even though Reagan was caught red-handed lying about the, you know, his deal with Iraq, the Iran-Contragate issue. Um, if as soon as James Baker came into the White House and made a personal commitment to restore order to the White House. So there's been this history of, of a bipartisan effort to avoid this kind of constitutional crisis in the past. But this has changed in recent years, hasn't it, with this Congress and with the Clinton impeachment? Yes, I think that the Congress, I, I think, for example, the, the Republicans have failed in any way, shape, or form, although they control the House and the Senate, to investigate what happened uh, fully, what happened with regard to the, the deception of, uh, of the Iraq War, fully to investigate the issue of torture and detainee torture. In fact, uh, this new law, the Military Tribunal Commission law, um, actually provides immunity for uh, any government official, whether it's the president or a CIA inter interrogator who violated the U.S. War Crimes Act um, without debate, without analysis without hearings without public discussion i mean I, I, what what troubles me is that we you know the congress has been almost as bad as the president in terms of failing its responsibility but impeachment will not work in my opinion unless it is bipartisan and unless the country the people of this country understand that what's at stake is preserving the rule of law and making sure that a president of the united states doesn't declare himself above the law because if this president can violate the law on wiretapping and the law on mistreatment of prisoners and uh, deceive the country into going into war, well, what will the next president do and how much worse will that be? How come there's no congressman really talking about this and do you see any hope that that's going to happen? It's not surprising. Uh, first of all, I should say John Conyers, in fact, did introduce a resolution which has been co-sponsored by 37 or 39 members of Congress calling for an inquiry into whether the president committed impeachable offenses. And I think Russ Feingold in the Senate. Had a censure resolution, not impeachment. You can't actually, probably he would have... Congress has to legally impeach first, right? Well, yes, and, and uh, also there's... Right. The House has to impeach first before the Senate acts, so you couldn't even introduce an impeachment resolution in the Senate. I think if the Democrats do take over the House and the Senate, there will be serious inquiry into this, and there should be. But it needs to be done, if it's going to be done, in a totally fair and bipartisan manner, and it has to follow the standards that were set during the Nixon impeachment inquiry, which... You know, we bent over backwards in that to be fair to the president, to make sure that his point of view was fully heard, to make sure that it was bipartisan. We could have rammed it through, and it never would have been persuasive to the American people. And you can't remove an elected president unless the American people agree to that. And that's really what the Nixon impeachment showed. The uh, partisan impeachments of Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton showed that those are just not going to succeed because the American people will not tolerate 
uh, overturning uh, an evo- a vote by a partisan group. But, on the other hand, the American people also have to say that we want to preserve our constitutional democracy and the power is in their hands now. You have grown and accepted that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone. Or the times they are changing. Some writers and critics who prophesize with your pen. Chance won't come again And don't speak too soon For the wheel's still in spin And there's no telling Who that it's naming Was the loser Now will be later To win For the times They are changing You know, Trent Lott, Senator from Mississippi, former Senate Majority Leader, lost his job because he was accused of being a racist. It stuck because he's a... Uh, racist and uh back in uh, 2000 what two i think uh while honoring uh strom thurman on strom's 164th birthday uh lot uh said that it, it was actually his hundredth wasn't it I, I thought he i thought it was easily more than 150 oh okay. maybe i'm wrong uh it might have been his hundredth birthday or his whatever night whatever it was uh so he, honoring strom, uh, strom thurman on his birthday he suggested the country wouldn't have all these problems if Strom had been elected uh, president when he ran as a segregationist in 1948, all these problems like the civil rights movement and having to share a water fountain with black dudes. Uh, that was Strom Thurmond's entire campaign. I do not want to drink water from the same place as black guys. Now, look, you know, they took him down for it, but some Republicans to this day say like, oh, that was a hatchet job. That wasn't that big a deal. But think about it for a second. He thought that it would have been great and we wouldn't have had any problems in the country if the segregationists had won in 1948. And it was, it was yeah, I mean, he claims he was kidding, but the, it, it, there's it a way. It sound like he was kidding. You can joke about Strom being president, you know, but not like that. We wouldn't have all these problems, as Jesse Helms wrote in his book last year, all these outside agitators that came down for the civil rights movement. These uh, guys and, and never we, got beyond it. I mean, look, I mean, and these guys are more old school. They're Southern, right? I mean, but then you got George Allen, who isn't even really Southern. He, nice he grew, up in, grew up in Southern California, and he's not really that old. But nonetheless, now, do you know that we're now up to like 88 people who have said that George Allen has used the N-word? That there's like another two, two or three different people we since we lasted the story. We didn't get the one that rings so true, and also it offended me personally. A woman in Washington, D.C., election night, 1976, November 1976, so George Allen is at a party in Washington, and uh, he uh, is talking about his father is then the famous uh, coach, successful coach, too, of the Washington Redskins, who sort of, you know, dominate the Washington sports scene almost like no other team in any other city. And uh, uh, and uh, he talked about all those good-for-nothing, fill-in-the-blank, uh, using the N-word on the Redskins, in particular Larry Brown. Larry Brown was the first, maybe the first athlete I ever heard of. Mm-hmm. You know, the first player I ever liked, number 43, really tough runner for the Redskins. That made me mad. <laughs> <laughs> so you took uh, that one personally. Okay, yeah, I got and uh, it's just You know which one I took personally? Um, the one where he cut a deer's head off and shoved it in the mailbox of a black family. College, That's the one I took personally. You know why? College prank. Yeah, it's just like a cute college prank. Yeah. I took that one person because uh, some uh, some idiot in a, in my dad's neighborhood going around uh, knocking off our the mailboxes with a baseball bat, and they did it to our house too. And I thought, yeah, that makes me feel how bad it is to have a deer head in your mailbox if you're a black family in the 1970s. Yeah, it's uh, it's great. He's all class, uh, George Allen. So um, uh, 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 there's just no question he's used the word. He's used it a lot because he it's in his heart. It's who he is. Uh, you know, he may have uh, grown out of it a little as he's gotten older and realized that it's politically necessary to stop talking that way. Um, uh, but George Allen's a bad guy, doesn't deserve to be in the Senate. And you say they brought Trent Lott down. It's true. He lost his job as majority leader as a result of the uh, Strom Thurmond comment. It, it was quite an indignation for him to suffer. He's now one of only 100 senators. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's still a senator from the United States senator. There are never any consequences. And the Joe Lieberman syndrome is very much in effect here. The not my guy, even uh, he has a puzzling amount of black support in Mississippi. Oh, old Trent, he's a good guy. We know him. We like him. You shouldn't like him. He's a terrible, terrible, terrible guy. It's exactly what's happening with Democrats supporting Joe Lieberman. It's Republicans and Democrats who support Trent Locke. He wins with like 70% of the vote every time. And it's happening in Connecticut. You're not getting when it's time to get rid of somebody. All right. So, let, so let, now we'll get back to exactly what... Let me repeat real quick what he said, and then we'll get into the second thing he said, which... Arguably is worse. It's not racist, but it's more disturbing for a, a leader of the party in power. He's talking about the violence uh, in uh, in Iraq and the root of the violence, uh, the, the civil war violence in Iraq, the Shia, Shia against the Sunni. Hard for Americans, Trent Lott says, all of us, including me, to understand what's wrong with these people. Always a good red flag with these people. Why do they kill people of other religions because of religion? Why do they hate the Israelis and despise their right to exist? Okay, pause for a second yeah. there. We rushed through that uh, in the earlier segment. The Iraqis have nothing to do with Israel. I mean, maybe you saw it about Ahmadinejad in Iran, right? But wait, wait, wait. you're talking about Sunnis and Shiites. The Sunnis in Iran, I mean, in Iraq, have said nothing about Israel and their right to exist. And this guy, he doesn't the, care. To them, they're all Arabs. What difference does it make? Yeah, uh, of course. And, of course, if you don't understand why there's hostility toward Israel, you have a contention to knock somebody off the list and move into the thing we talked about earlier, the 100 dumbest Americans in, 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 the, in the country. Gee, why do Muslims hate Israel in the Middle East? Trent, you're a United States senator in the majority party. You never thought about that? That never occurred to you and you haven't solved that by now? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't, I wish that... I, you I might wish, not agree or, you might agree or disagree, but I think it's pretty obvious why they hate him. Look, I, I think it's uh, that uh, it's it's disturbing and, and something must be done about it and, and, and we have to, you know, get beyond it, uh, but... But I, I get it. I understand why. <laughs> um, and not understanding why is just flat-out ignorant. So why do they hate the Israelis and despise their right to exist? Why do they hate each other? Why do Sunnis kill Shiites? How do they tell the difference? <laughs> they all look the same to me. <laughs> now, that part's not made up. He said it. They, they all, all look the same to me. Why? I mean, just that just skyrockets off the ignorant me. Then he's just come out, so he's he's ignorant, he's a racist, he doesn't understand what's happening in Iraq, he doesn't understand why it's important. He, and, and, and like Jeff Sessions, I, the, he has this attitude of, I don't care, I, I don't know, and I don't want to know. Let's, uh, for those of you just uh, joining us, uh, Jeff Sessions, senator from uh, Alabama, uh, talked about the, uh, the the detainee, torture, no habeas corpus, throw the Constitution down the well so my country can't be free, Bill, said uh, exactly what, Cenk? I don't know what's in the bill, and I don't want to know what's in it. U.S. Senator voting for it. Yeah, and just to explain it. And in, 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 just, just by the way, if you don't know what's in a bill and you don't care, do me the courtesy of voting against it. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and his reasoning for it, to be fair to him, is, look, we are not we shouldn't know the secret uh, torture tactics that we're using, to be fair to him. And that if we, t you know, if I know, that means the enemy's going to know and we, the enemy can't know how we're going to, you know, pull their toenails out and throw them off a bridge. Two different things we've actually done to uh, our detainees. Yeah. Uh, so uh, those are those, those are your, your, your bright winning Republicans uh, leading this country. So he comes out of a meeting with George Bush and Dick Cheney, Trent Lott does, and then reporters uh, ask him sort of what went on and ask him uh, if Iraq uh, was discussed, essentially, and, and Trent Lott says no, uh, uh, that Iraq was not discussed with Vice President Cheney and President Bush or President Cheney and Vice President Bush. Uh, you, the media, are the only ones who obsess on Iraq. The media, that's who's obsessing on Iraq. We don't obsess about Iraq, and the real people out in the real world don't for the most part. They, I mean, the man just said it. We, we don't care about Iraq, and we, they, they're, they're unconcerned. They're unconcerned. And then he thinks real people don't care. About How about the real people that died in Iraq? I'm not even talking about the poor Iraqis that, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of, of them have died. I'm talking about United States soldiers that you sent in there, troops that you sent in there that died. Are they concerned about Iraq? Do you think that they might be concerned that you're not concerned about Iraq? 
And remember, President Bush said this about Osama bin Laden, too. They just start this huge problem, and then they stand there on concern. But Bush said, me, I, Osama bin Laden, I'm not, I'm not concerned about him. He's not a top priority for me. And now they're apparently unconcerned about Iraq. How do you trust these guys? I mean, if you're a Republican, how do you look at this and go, yeah, that's my guy. The guy who started a disastrous war in the Middle East and is now unconcerned about it. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is. It, 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 the fact I just I'm so stunned by the it, ignorance is one thing. Proud ignorance is dangerous. And that's, of course, what we've been experiencing uh, with this administration uh, throughout. Trailhead full of zombies. I met a strange lady, she made me nervous. She took me in and gave me breakfast. And she said, Do you come from a land down under? A women go and men wonder. Can't you hear, can't you hear the thunder? You better run, you better take cover. something if you want a uh, a perfect encapsulation of where the republicans are now uh listen to uh this guy uh, representative ray LaHood, republican from illinois on cbs's face the nation over the weekend uh here he is trying i mean now understand he's going out there to protect danny hastard and uh essentially he he finds himself telling too much of the truth and i don't think he realized what a searing indictment he was making of the Republican Party and the Republican leadership. And in fact, Bob Schieffer, who was interviewing, couldn't help but laugh. Because, uh, let's play this. This is really unbelievable. Number one. I give uh, Speaker Hastert high marks for strong leadership. He took care of Tom DeLay, his best friend. When Tom was uh, having uh, ethical problems, the Speaker went to him and asked him to leave. He, uh, when he appointed Duke Cunningham to the Intelligence Committee, he went to Duke and made sure he wasn't on the Intelligence Committee after it was disclosed he took $2.3 million. And when Bob Ney was appointed chairman of the House Administration Committee, he was appointed by Speaker Hastert. Speaker Hastert went to him and told him to step down from that committee after the Abramoff disclosures. Hastert has the ability to take on these big ethical <laughs> challenges that our party has faced. And I believe he stepped up this week with his statement apologizing, taking responsibility, and saying that there would be an evaluation of the program. And I, I think he's done uh, what he should have done uh, maybe a few days too late, but uh, he, he's shown the strong leadership that he showed in other instances when we've had these ethical challenges. But, but what, what you're saying when you list all that, Congressman, is that he did appoint some of these people who turned out to be crooks. So uh, doesn't he have something to uh, answer for there? Well, they weren't crooks when he appointed him, Bob. For cer certainly, he wouldn't. They would have never gotten the positions they got uh, had they had these ethical challenges. Uh, <laughs> oh gosh, boy, out of the mouths of babes. Uh, but uh, apparently, Representative Ray LaHood is actually an adult. He goes on to protect uh, Denny Hastert by saying that, look, you know, when Denny Hastert faced all these ethical challenges that were brought up by all the Republicans he appointed. Tom DeLay as a top leader of the Republicans in the House. Bob Ney, who has, first of all, Bob Ney admitted, what was it now, over three weeks ago, to taking uh, illegal gifts in his capacity as a congressman, said uh, immediately went into uh, alcohol rehab because apparently he was drunk all the time every time he up uh, is that a free gift for me oh let me take a shot of vodka and then i can accept it because i'm just drunk they really got to shut down that congressional bar <laughs> apparently causing lots of problems first off no more wet bars in any of the republicans uh, uh congressional offices i'm talking about the one uh you know on the floor of congress apparently they got these they got you know they have a, both a voting apparatus and a kegger and that also was Foley's excuse, too, that he uh, was drinking. Um, 
Uh, Tom DeLay has yet to come out and say that I had an alcohol problem. Uh, Randy Duke Cunningham, I believe, did say alcohol played a part in his uh, bribery. But Bob Ney has yet to resign from Congress. And there is yet to be a member of the leadership of uh, the Republican Party to demand his resignation. He wants to stay in because apparently if he resigns, he won't get his, uh, his pension. So you're going to be paying his pension after he serves his 27 months of prison. And, and, and what is fascinating about this uh, LaHood uh, uh, quote here, this audio soundbite, is he keeps referring to these ethical challenges. As if, as if this is not, these people aren't unethical. As if these people aren't criminal. These Republican leaders. No, it's as if ethical challenges float around in the air like a virus. And Denny Hafter did all he could to fight off this cloud of ethical challenges that just sort of emanates around uh, the, the, the Capitol Hill. And, and it, it, it wasn't a question of him picking bad people. No, he, they weren't ethically challenged before they got into a position of power. So how could Denny Hafter know? I mean, this is indicative of what I have been saying for months now. To be a conservative is to mean that you don't believe you're capable of doing wrong. If you, if you commit a criminal act, if you have an ethical lapse, if you allow a child predator to roam the halls of Congress, it's not your fault. It's this virus. It's this thing outside of you. tonight a special comment on the advertising of terrorism the commercial you have already seen it is a distillation of everything this administration and the party in power have tried to do these last five years and six weeks it is from the republican national committee it shows images of osama bin laden and ayman zawahari it offers quotes from them all as a clock ticks ominously in the background it concludes with what Zawahari may or may not have said to a Pakistani journalist as long ago as 2001 his dubious claim that he had purchased suitcase bombs. The quotation is followed by sheer coincidence, no doubt, by an image of a massive explosion. These are the stakes, appears on the screen, quoting exactly from Lyndon Johnson's infamous nuclear scare commercial from 1964. Vote November 7th. There is a cheap Texas chainsaw massacre quality to the whole thing. It also serves to immediately call to mind the occasions when President Bush dismissed Osama bin Laden as somebody he didn't think about, except, obviously, when elections were near. Frankly, a lot of people seeing that commercial for the first time have laughed out loud. But not everyone. And therein lies the true threat to this country. The dictionary definition of the word terrorize is simple and not open to misinterpretation. To fill or overpower with terror, terrify, to coerce by intimidation or fear. Note, please, that the words violence and death are missing from that definition. For the key to terror, the key to terrorism is not the act, but the fear of the act. That is why bin Laden and his deputies and his imitators are forever putting together videotaped statements and releasing virtual infomercials with dire threats and heart-stopping warnings. But why is the Republican Party imitating them? Bin Laden puts out what amounts to a commercial of fear. The Republicans put out what is unmistakable as a commercial of fear. The Republicans are paying to have the messages of bin Laden and the others broadcast into your home. Only the Republicans have a bigger bankroll. When last week the CNN network ran video of an insurgent in Iraq evidently stalking and killing an American soldier, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Mr. Hunter, Republican of California, branded that channel, quote, the publicist for an enemy propaganda film and added that CNN used it to sell commercials. 
Another California Republican, Representative Brian Bilbray, called the video, quote, nothing short of a terrorist snuff film. If so, Mr. Bilbray, then what in the hell is your party's new advertisement? And Mr. Hunter, CNN using the video to sell commercials? Commercials! You have adopted bin Laden and Zawahari as spokesmen for the Republican National Committee to fill or overpower with terror, terrify, to coerce by intimidation or fear. By this definition, the people who put these videos together, first the terrorists and then the administration, whose shared goal is to scare you into panicking instead of thinking. They are the ones terrorizing you. By this definition, the leading terrorist group in this world right now is Al-Qaeda. But the leading terrorist group in this country right now is the Republican Party. Eleven presidents ago, a chief executive reassured us that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. His distant successor has wasted his administration, insisting that there is nothing we can have but fear itself. The vice president, as recently as this month, was caught campaigning again with the phrase mass death in the United States. Four years ago, it was the now Secretary of State, Dr. Rice, rationalizing Iraq with, quote, we don't want to be the smoking gun to be the mushroom cloud. Days later, Mr. Bush himself told an audience that, quote, we cannot wait for the final proof, the smoking gun that could come in the form of a mushroom cloud. And now we have this cheesy commercial, complete with images of a faked mushroom cloud and implications of mass death in America. This administration has derived benefit and power from terrorizing the very people it claims to be protecting from terror. It may be the oldest trick in the political book, scare people into believing they are in danger and that only you can save them. Lyndon Johnson used it to bury Barry Goldwater. Joe McCarthy leaped from obscurity on its back. And now the legacy has come to President George W. Bush. Of course, the gruel of fear is getting thinner and thinner, is it not, Mr. President? And thus, more and more of it needs to be made out of less and less actual terror. After last week's embarrassing Internet hoax about dirty bombs at football stadium, the one your Department of Homeland Security immediately disseminated to the public, a self-described former CIA operative named Wayne Simmons cited the fiasco as, quote, the, and I mean the, perfect example of the President's Military Commissions Act of 2006 and the NSA terrorist eavesdropping program, how vital they are. Frank Gaffney, once a respected Assistant Secretary of Defense and now the president of something called the Center for Security Policy, added, One of the things that I hope Americans take away from this is not only that they're gunning for us not just in a place like Iraq, but truly worldwide. Of course, the they to which Mr. Gaffney referred turned out to be a lone 20-year-old grocery bagger from Wisconsin named Jake a kid trying to one-up some other loser in an internet game of chicken. His threat referenced seven football stadiums at which dirty bombs were to be exploded yesterday. It began with the one in New York City, even though there isn't one in New York City. And though the attacks were supposed to be simultaneous, four of the games were scheduled to start at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and the others at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Moreover, the kid said he had posted the identical message on 40 websites since September. We caught him in merely about six weeks even though the only way he could have been less subtle, less stealthy, and less of a threat was if he'd bought an advertisement on the Super Bowl telecast. Mr. Bush, this is the what, 100th plot your people have revealed that turned out to be some nonsensical misunderstanding or the fabrications of somebody hoping to talk his way off a waterboard in Eastern Europe? If, Mr. President, this is the kind of crack work that your new ad implies that only you and not the Democrats can do, you, sir, need to pull over and ask for directions. The real question, of course, Mr. Bush, is why did your Department of Homeland Security even release that information in the first place? It was never a serious threat. Even the first news accounts quoted a Homeland spokesman as admitting strong skepticism, the kind of strong skepticism which most government agencies address before telling the public, not afterwards. So that leaves two options, Mr. President. The first option, you and your Department of Homeland Security don't have the slightest idea what you're doing here. Thus, contrary to your flip-flopping between saying, we're safe, and saying, but we're not safe enough, and contrary to the vice president's swaggering pronouncements about the lack of another attack since 9-11, the last five years has been just an accident. Or there's the second option. Your political operatives leaked this nonsense for the same reason your political operatives put out that commercial, to scare the gullible. Obviously, the correct answer, Mr. Bush, is all of the above. There are some of us who could forgive you 
for trying to run your candidates on the coattails of the Grim Reaper, for reducing your party's existence to death and attacks us. It's cynical and barbaric, but after all, it may be merely the natural extension of the gutter politics to which you have subscribed since you sidled over from baseball and the business world of other people's money. But to forgive you for terrorizing us, we would have to believe you somehow competent in keeping others from terrorizing us. Yet last week, construction workers repairing a subway line in New York City were cleaning out an abandoned manhole on the edge of the World Trade Center site when they stumbled on the horrific and the impossible. Human remains from 9-11. Bones and fragments, 80 of them, some as much as a foot long. The victims had been lying, literally in the gutter, for five years and five weeks. The families and friends of each of the 2,749 dead who had been grimly told in May 2002 that there were no more remains to be found were struck anew as if the terrorism of that day had just happened all over again. And over this weekend, they have found still more remains. And now this week will be spent looking in places that should have already been looked at a thousand times five years ago. For all the victims in New York, Mr. Bush, the living and the dead, it is a touch of 9-11 all over again. Michael. And the mayor of this city who called off the search four and a half years ago is a Republican. The governor of this state with whom he conferred is a Republican. The House of Representatives, Republican. The Senate, Republican. The President, Republican. And yet you can actually claim that you and you alone can protect us from terrorism? You can't even recover our dead from the battlefield. The battlefield in an American city when we've given you five years and unlimited funds to do so. While well, citing a Military Commissions Act so monstrous that it has now been criticized by even the John Birch Society, you told us, Mr. Bush, quote, there is nothing we can do to bring back the men and women lost on September 11, 2001. Yet we'll always honor their memory, and we will never forget the way they were taken from us. Except, of course, for the ones who have been lying under a manhole cover for five years. Setting aside the fact that your government has done nothing else for those five years but pat itself on the back about terror while waging pointless war on the wrong enemy in Iraq and waging war on the cherished freedoms in America. Just on this subject of counterterrorism, sir, yours is the least competent government in time of crisis in this country's history. These are the stakes, indeed, Mr. President. You do not know what you are doing, and the commercial, the one about which Zawahari might say, hey, pretty good, we love your choice of font style. All that further needs to be said about that is to add three words to Shakespeare. Mr. President, you and that advertisement of terror are full of sound and fury signifying and competent at nothing. Good night and good luck.